Now, I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and open them up to the book of Psalms. We want to continue our study on the attributes of God. His attributes, how awesome. Uh, we have looked at the grace of God. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the goodness of God. And now today, we want to uh, focus our attention on the glory of God from Psalm chapter 19. Uh, we're going to read a few verses, and I'm going to ask you to stand. We'll read about the first six, seven verses. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens, it makes its circuit to the other, nothing is hidden from its heat." Creation is a constant call, reminder that there is a God, a God who created all the beauty and all the majesty of the heavens and the earth. And one of the things that we need to do is to understand how great and glorious our God is. Father in heaven, we love you. We praise you for who you are. There is nothing that we experience that has not been crafted by your almighty hands. And we come this morning with gratitude and thanksgiving that we belong to you. You're our creator. You're our redeemer. You're our mediator. You are our go-between. You are our friend. Uh, you are the one that transforms and makes us brand new and we bow and worship and love to you thank you for the privilege of studying your word together in Jesus name I pray amen you may be seated one of the great themes to probe and ponder is the glory of God the glory of God when we speak about God's glory we're talking about something that is in a sense otherworldly and yet in another real sense the evidences of his glory are all around us when Franklin Roosevelt was the president of the United States he would often invite the naturalist William Beebe to come to the White House for dinner they would have dinner and then they would participate in a ritual that would happen whenever these two leaders got together. Uh, they would go out from the White House and they would look up into the heavens and one of them would identify the great square of Pegasus. And then one of these leaders would recite these words that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. 
It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of a hundred billion suns, each one larger than our sun. And then they would pause for a few moments and say to one another, now I think we feel small enough. We can retire for the evening. The glory of God as revealed in the heavens and the earth is a subject that almost defies human understanding or knowledge. Our God is not only awesome and full of grace, He is not only full of grace and goodness, but our God is glorious. He is glorious in His person, and His glory extends to the ends of the earth. What do we mean when we say the phrase, to God be the glory? We are basically ascribing magnificence and splendor for who he is. The theologian Augustus Strong puts it this way, God's glory is that which makes him glorious. It is not something without like the praise and esteem of men, but something within like the dignity and value of his own attributes. In a word, the glory of God is the sum of his perfections, his wisdom, his power, his omniscience, and yes, his omnipresence. When Moses, in Exodus 33 and verse 18, asked God, show me your glory, Moses is asking God to reveal the very essence of his being to him. He's asking for a revelation of God that no human being has ever been able to be allowed to behold or to see. And though God does give uh, Moses an opportunity to observe his glory, he only sees a small aspect of it. He hides Moses, you'll remember, in the cleft of the rock and he allows, the Bible says, his, his goodness to pass before Moses. Because no human being is ever in a position to see the very brightness, the brilliance of the being of God as to who he fully and completely is. Indeed, no man can ever behold God in his full complement of glory and live. And therefore, when the scripture speaks of Moses as communicating with God face to face, they're referring to the fact that what Moses saw was a similitude of God, that is, a manifestation of divine glory in a certain form and not the direct and essential glory of God. No human being can look at the glory of God and survive. One commentator puts it this way. He says, quote, as our bodily eye is dazzled and its power of vision destroyed by looking at the brightness of the sun, so would our whole nature be destroyed by an unveiled sight of the brilliancy of the glory of God. And as long as we are in these uh, bodies, of flesh and bone, tainted and marred by sin, 
We can only see God through the eye of faith as far as he has chosen to reveal his glory to us through his works and through his word. One of these days we will exchange these earthly bodies for heavenly bodies fashioned like unto his glorious body and then the Bible says we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That is we will see him in his unveiled glory and we will live with him forever and ever. Can you imagine what that will be like to live in the full brilliance, this dazzling brilliance of the glory of God forever and ever and ever and ever. Now Psalm 19 is a psalm that forthrightly declares the glory of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. The glory of God is great. The Bible does not, prove, does not attempt to prove the existence of God. It does point to the general revelation that God has made of himself through nature and the special revelation of God that comes through his word. These are evidences of his matchless might, his wisdom, and eternal glory. Now in this psalm, it tells us that God's glory is manifested in three spheres. First of all, God's glory is revealed in God's word. In God's world, excuse me. And first of all, he starts out here by giving us a testimony of the heavens. The universe is... <coughs> is a silent and eloquent witness of God's glory, of his absolute splendor. Here in chapter 19 and verse 1, notice the words, the heavens declare, the skies proclaim. It is a constant testimony to the glory of God. Verse 2 speaks of the fact that the heavens are pouring forth their information about the glory of God day after day. In fact, the heavens cannot contain the glory of God. One put, commentator says this, from every uh, crack and cranny of the universe pours forth the glory of God. Furthermore, the fact that days and nights come and go so consistently is an eloquent testimony of the reliability and the absolute fidelity of God's glory. Verse 3, we discover that all the nations of the earth, whether they're rich or poor, underdeveloped or developing, hear the voice of the created order declaring, shouting out the glory of God. They reach, notice in verse 4, to the end of the world. There's no place on planet earth where you can go and not experience, to some degree, the glory of God. You can go east to west, north, south, Wherever you go on this planet, the glory of God is revealed. The majestic mountains, the canyons, the valleys, the oceans, the rushing waters, the shimmering streams, all of nature cries out, there is a God and he is glorious. We need to understand that everything we see, you guys up here in Northern Michigan are especially blessed with all kinds of evidences 
of the glory of God. The trees, the flowers. I mean, what happened during the fall with the brilliant changing of the leaves. I have never seen anything like it. God has placed us here to enjoy what he has provided for us through nature. The psalmist speaks in verses 4 to 6, especially of the sun. And he talks about the brilliance of the sunrise. And if you rise early enough in the morning to see the sunrise, there is a calmness, there is a tranquility, there is a stillness that will blow you away. The psalmist notes that the sun touches everything in its circuit. There's nothing that is hidden from it. And so in these opening verses, he is expounding in much detail about the incredible glory of God as seen in nature. Not only does God make himself known through the testimony of the heavens, but the immensity of the heavens is further undisputed evidence of the glory of God. Astronomers tell us that the standard unit for measurement in the solar system is the astronomical unit. An astronomical unit is the average distance from the Earth to the Sun, or 93 million miles. And of the nine planets in our solar system, the one furthest away is Pluto, which is 40 astronomical units away from the Sun. Now, for you mathematicians, you take 93 million miles, multiply that by 40. Another unit of measurement is light years. And a light year is the distance light travels in a year. All of us remember, don't we, that light travels 186,000 miles per second. Therefore, one light year equals 6 trillion miles. The nearest star to the Earth is called... Alpha Centauri. It's 4.3 light years away from the Earth, or 26 million trillion, excuse me, trillion miles. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time contemplating even a trillion miles, let alone 26 trillion miles. And here's something to really think about. To print one trillion $1 bills... The paper needed to print all those dollar bills would completely destroy all the forests in North America. A tape measure of one trillion miles in length could wrap around the earth at the equator 600 times and still have enough length to go to the moon and back. The galaxy in which we live has a diameter of 100,000 light years. Multiply that by six trillion miles. That boggles my mind. The sun, which is our closest star, has a diameter of 864,000 miles. That's the sun. By comparison, the diameter of our largest planet, Jupiter, is only 86,000 miles, while the diameter of the Earth is a mere 8,000 miles. If the sun were a hollow ball, it would take 1.3 million Earths to fill it up. 
Moreover, the sun is at that perfect 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the earth is exactly 93 million miles away from that burning inferno at just the right distance. If we were closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were, or excuse me, if we were closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were further from the sun, we'd freeze up. Is that just by chance? I don't think so. Astronomers also tell us that 120 globular clusters have been discovered in our galaxy, and each cluster contains between 100,000 to 500,000 stars. The star Alpha in Hercules, one of the largest stars, listen, is 215 times greater than the diameter of the sun, whose diameter is 864,000 miles. 215 times greater, and then we sing, twinkle, twinkle, little star. No wonder, as the psalmist gazes into the heavens, he receives this message loud and clear, there is a God, he is a glorious God, majestic and full of splendor. And we need to understand God in terms of, of the vastness and the immensity of this created order that he has made. And far too many of us, I fear, have too small of a God. We think God is someone that can easily be manipulated for our own purposes. We try to manipulate God and put him in some kind of a box. But our God is not one who can be manipulated, nor can he be compartmentalized. He is a mighty big God. The vastness of the universe, the immensity of the solar systems are incredible testimonies to the glory of God. And when we get a glimpse of God in terms of who he really is, We, along with Frank Borman, in that Apollo spacecraft that circled the moon for the very first time on Christmas Eve, and he looked at planet Earth from that distance, and he began reading from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's amazing. He read that whole chapter from outer space. Psalm 8 verses 3 and 4 puts it this way. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This great God, this God who is created the heavens and the universe and the galaxies and the stars that are beyond comprehension in size is a God that loves us. Is a God that cares for us. There's not a situation in your life that you're facing right now that is too big for God to handle. He is an incredible God. 
And so many times we limit him. We blame him for our problems. We accuse him of not caring for us. When in reality, he is a God that is a very present help, the Bible says, in time of need. Number two, God's glory is not only revealed in his world, his glory is reflected in his word. And you see this in verses 7 through 10. Now, the heavens and the earth are dramatic and dynamic testimonies of God's glory, that revelation of God in nature is not enough to save us. We can be surrounded with all the beauty and the grandeur of everything God has created and still remain in our sins. In order to have a personal relationship with the living God, we need to understand what he promises in his word. And that's why it's so important that we assemble together and we come together to learn about the Word of God and how we can experience life, a transforming and a changed life. Now, I know there are many of you that are longing for the spring to come so that you can head out on the golf course. Uh, in fact, many view the country club as the worship center because they say that that's where they really meet God. And I've run into them, and I'm sure many of you, you know, they will say, well, you know, I can worship God out there in nature just as much as worshiping God here at church. And I would dispute that for one minute. The question is, do you? Do you worship God while you're trying to find your ball in the rough after you've shanked it off the first tee? Do you worship God when you have a good score going into the 18th green and you discover your second shot landed smack dab in the middle of a sand trap and not even a pitching wedge will help you? I mean, God's beauty is all around you. You're seeing it all around you. But there's very little chance that in that moment you will hear the word that will transform your life. Even the most well-equipped country clubs to my knowledge, do not have streaming services to get the message of the cross out to those golfers who are enjoying the beauty of God's creation. Let's go even further. If a worshiper could worship God on the golf course, that revelation of God in nature is still insufficient for him to make Christ his personal savior. That information is not printed on the back of the scorecard. It's only found in God's Word. This book is a supernatural book. This is the book that will change our lives forever. And the psalmist here speaks about the Word of God. First of all, he focuses his attention on the character of God's Word. Notice in verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It is a guide for living. God's word articulates what we must do to inherit eternal life, how we can grow and mature in Christ. The Bible also warns us when we fail and miss the mark. Verse 7 also says the testimony of the Lord is sure. 
God's word is his personal witness to us. He does not lie to us. He speaks truth. Every word in this book is true. And apart from God's testimony as found in his word, we would all be lost and without hope. Psalm 19.8, the psalmist says, The precepts of the Lord are right. Precepts are God's orders. <clears throat> They're absolutes for a living. Now, unfortunately, we live in a culture that does not believe in absolute truth anymore. I mean, even among evangelicals, barely half believe that this book is absolute truth. Many of them just believe it's kind of happy thoughts from God. The Ten Commandments are the Ten Suggestions. But this book is our authority for a living. And if you don't recognize the scriptures to be your authority for living, we become our authority for living, and we live life on our terms without any understanding of the greatness of God. Notice also in verse 8, he speaks about the commands of God. He's not talking there about the Ten Commandments. He's talking there about the whole counsel is found in the Word of God. You see, God's Word is really a roadmap for living. And the only way that we can succeed is to follow that which God has made known to us, not only through nature, but now even more importantly, through his word. It's very interesting. He goes on to say in verse 9 that the fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. There's nothing impure about the word of God. It's absolutely pure and holy. Notice verse 10. He describes God's word as being more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey and honey from the honeycomb. God's words are sweet. They energize us. They motivate us. They encourage us to live a life that is pleasing to him. Verse 9, he also says that God's word is true and righteous altogether. There's nothing phony about God. If you want truth, if you want to believe that which is right, then this book becomes your source of power. You're always under the authority of this book. Our problems in life come when God's word is no longer our authority and we become our own authority and take matters into our own hands. Not only does he speak of the character of God's word, but he emphasizes the content of God's word. Notice it is perfect, verse 7. God's word is complete. There's no new revelation being given. We don't need some new revelation. What we need to do as the people of God is to practice and obey what God has already revealed to us in this book. Not only is it a book that has truth. Notice God's word is sure. It is trustworthy in verse 7. It is a foundational to every, everything that we believe. And it really reflects God's glory because God's glory is perfect. God's word in verse 8 is right. Isn't that encouraging? 
In a world when so much is wrong, God's word is right. It is true. There is nothing that you will ever read in the word of God that will leave a bad taste in your mouth. That only comes, the bitterness only comes when we reject God's truth and do not take it seriously. Verse 9, he says, the word is true and righteous. There have been many assailants. Do you realize that this book is the number one bestseller year after year? It's amazing to me that when people want to get their points across, how many of them start quoting scripture? Even though in many cases they don't even recognize the power of what they're saying. This book is power. The assailants have come and gone, but the book abides. And when we understand that this book is so full of life, we will be prompted to pray, Oh Lord, open my eyes, that I can behold wonderful truth from your book. God's glory is not only reflected in the character of God's word and the content, it's also reflected in the consequences of obeying and responding to God's word. Notice the <clears throat> way in which we respond to truth. Verse 7, it revives the soul. Do you ever go through a period of spiritual dryness and your <clears throat> God doesn't seem to go through, get through to you? We need to read the Bible when we don't feel like reading the Bible. So many of us <clears throat> need our souls to be revived on a daily basis. That's what the Word of God does. If we wait until Sundays to be revived, we've waited too long. God wants us to be in the Word. There is a constant revival that God wants to birth within us as we allow His truth daily to transform us. Notice also, God's word makes wise the simple. Now, he's not talking there about simple-minded folks. He's referring to those that are teachable and can, can apply the truth of the word to their lives. You will never exhaust the vastness of God's word. In fact, the more you read this book, the more you realize how much you don't know. You could go back to text and read it over and over and over and over and over and over again and always see something new. You can never exhaust this book because it is God's revealed glory to us. Also, he says in verse 8, notice he says, God's word brings light to the eyes. It brings freshness and expectancy. Have you ever noticed how bright the eyes of our kids get? When they're about to receive a surprise, oh, their eyes get so big. It's amazing. And our guys get big too when we start studying the Bible. You mean that's in the Bible? You mean I've been looking for this for a long time? It's in the Bible. And our eyes are open to truth. God's word is eye-opening like nothing else and then we also note here in this particular passage 
that not only is God's word enlightening and eye-opening, but it is also tremendously helpful for us. Can't find my notes here. It's also helpful for us. Man, I'm really confused here this morning. I'm so amazed at the word of God, I can't keep it all together. Or I'll find it here someplace. Don't you love it when the preacher messes up? I think these pages are stuck together. Well, let me put it this way. We need to move on to point number three. That's what I'm looking for. Can't find it. Here it is. God's glory is released in God's workmen. And you see this beginning in verses 11 through 14. It's very interesting to me that as we respond to the word of God and we allow God's truth to challenge us and to change us, there needs to be a prayer that is on our lips. And that prayer is outlined here in these verses. The psalmist, as he understands the power of the word of God, he realizes that God's glory is released in his workmen. And his workmen pray this kind of a prayer. Notice beginning in verse 12, O Lord, convict me. In other words, Lord, discern the errors of my heart. Convict me of my blind spots. Convict me of those areas where I haven't really been honest with myself or with you. We need to pray and ask the Lord to convict us. Number two, he prays, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse me, notice he says, from hidden faults. Those are sins that we unknowingly commit. They're sins of omission. Sins of omission are things that happen when we don't do what we know God wants us to do. Sin of omission may be not having a consistent quiet time, not having family devotions, not witnessing to a colleague, holding on to a grudge, not being willing to reconcile. Lord, cleanse me of those things that I know I need to do, but I haven't been doing. And then thirdly, he says, oh Lord, curb me. Curb me, 13. Keep your servant from willful sins. Now these are sins of commission. This is outright disobedience. In the first place, he's talking about things that we know we should be doing but aren't doing. Now he says, Lord, curb me from willful sin. These are outright acts of disobedience to God. Not doing what God has put in our hearts to do. Allowing resentment or strongholds to be built in our lives. 
we need to ask God to curb us from those things. Number four, he says, O Lord, correct me. Let them not have dominion over me. You know, when we don't deal with sin in our own lives and when we are not sensitive to the Holy Spirit and we close ourselves off to the movings of the Holy Spirit in our lives, those things that we're not doing, those things that we are willfully doing that we know displease God, strongholds get built up which keep us from enjoying the favor of God, the blessing of God. And so he prays, Lord, please, please correct me. Bring me back into alignment with you. And then he prays, number five, Lord, confirm your life in me. I love this. I often say this as I'm preparing for services every Sunday. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The point that I'm trying to make is simply this. This morning, the master designer wants to be the master designer in your life. He longs to do for you what you can never do for yourself. And he can take our lives that are all broken and messed up and he can turn them into masterpieces because he is glorious. He is so great. He is so powerful. He is so big. He is so glorious that no matter what state we may be in, our God can transform us. And if he can design the universe, don't you think he has the power to design our lives as well so that our lives are pleasing to him and so that we are walking in obedience to him? You see, I believe that there are many of you that are masterpieces of God. We are God's trophies. We are evidences that his glory has changed our lives because we've responded not only to nature, but we've responded to his word and then we're living out his word every day as his workmen to do that which pleases him and strengthens us to have an incredible impact in our communities. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you this morning. Take these fumbling words of a pastor and deeply impress them in our hearts. So go to our homes today as we travel back and forth. May we be in awe of your glory. May you ignite within us a deep desire to know more about you through your word. And may we allow your word to cause us to, on a regular basis, to be in a spirit of prayer. That our hearts would be clean and pure and open before you. And that you would use us in ways we've never been used before 
to tell about your glory, to speak of it, to evidence it by a life that is fully surrendered to you. Oh, Lord, do that in my heart and in all of our hearts today. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning and Maranatha. Have a great day in Jesus. God bless you.